Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack. This is the, the budget special. It's episode 133. I'm the hack, Hugh Remington, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen, as always. And boy, don't we feel special, Peter. Well, I was about to say, I mean, hopefully, if we, if we enjoy this budget special enough, here's my promise to you. Why don't we do it again in six months, not 12? <laughs> Who wants to wait a whole 12 months for the next budget? Let's just try to do it again in six months. We'll just have to wait and see, of course, if, if that works for the government. So as for it working for the opposition, immediately we see their reaction to the budget, and it's pretty clear that uh, they're going to go on a cost-of-living type warning. It, it, it's, mm. it's there politically. It's a gift for them, really, uh, because the numbers for the next little while, the next year, are not going to be great for households, not going to be great for businesses. Uh, this is the storm that we must now weather and that Jim Chalmers, we must rely on, and of course, the Reserve Bank governor is going to take us through. Yeah, and it's obvious. I mean, a lot of this is outside, well, most of this is outside the control of politicians. They can only make things worse in a sense if they don't react the right way to it. And it's interesting, the politics, if you take the politics out of this budget and you just look at it from a purely sort of economic standpoint, Jim Chalmers, uh, if you forgive not doing major structural reform, then he handed down what's a pretty responsible budget because he avoided the temptation to do extra handouts, which would have an inflationary impact on the budget at a time of high inflation, even though most politicians, particularly I would argue a Labor government, would probably like to go in that direction because of the cost of living pressures that people are facing. But you know, it's one of those awful things where when you get high or rising inflation, one of the only ways to bring it back under control is to keep spending locked down to an extent and to avoid the temptation to start giving people more which can simply then add to that inflationary effect. So, for example, if you started to do cash handouts writ large to help with things like energy prices, which we'll talk about, which are going up, up, and up, then those cash handouts just simply get spent because that's what they're there for. And the spending of them is one of the things that fuels inflation, which makes it harder to get inflation back under control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, in that sense, he's delivered a cautiously sound budget, but it is only, uh, I keep saying this, a, a sort of mini budget, right? What, what he's trying to do is lay down the markers, I think, Hugh, for what happens in six months' time. And th those markers appears to be, don't expect that the government can do too much to help you. And I think after six months of discussion, he might then also feel comfortable saying, look, we don't want to have both the inflationary effect of the stage three tax cuts, nor the damaging effect of it on the budget bottom line, which is in the current figures that we're looking at because it's been legislated. Sure. So we might get to the stage three uh, tax cuts. I'm struck by the fact that we've just hit an inflation rate, which is the highest we've seen since 1990, 32 years. And that means that there's a whole bunch of Australians, people listening to us who've never been through an inflationary cycle and certainly not of this height, and are probably still getting their heads around the totally counterintuitive notion that the answer to high prices is a higher mortgage and uh, higher borrowing in general. Mm. And that's the pain. So far, I get the feeling that, well, two things are, are going on. One thing is people are, are not complaining a great deal at the moment. It's not yet an outrage. People are not out on the street complaining about it. That may change. But, you know, power prices, mortgage prices, people haven't been turfed out of their houses. Those kinds of sort of case study stories are not totally washing through our news cycles, that may come and we get more anger, more anguish, more what's the government doing for me. 
it's bubbling under perhaps a little bit. But part of that may go to what the economists and the Reserve Bank have noted, and that is that we haven't yet seen the adjustment in spending that we would expect in a cycle of sharply rising interest rates. And that's because it takes a little while for people to make that adjustment, to suddenly realize, hey, hang on a minute, I haven't got this money in my pocket anymore. And that's one of the things they want to change, yeah, isn't it? I mean, the constant putting up of interest rates is the attempt in a monetary policy sense by the Reserve Bank to get inflation under control by curbing people's spending patterns. And the government can help with that by not fueling spending habits with more handouts to make life easier or, and we'll get to this as you say, potentially with more tax cuts, which will also then increase spending patterns down the track with those legislative cuts. So yeah, it all comes together under that strategy. It's also interesting to note, Hugh, I mean, this is obviously just a truism. If the last time that inflation was this high was 1990, by definition, inflation was coming down in 1990. Whereas at the moment, it appears like it's still on the way up. We haven't yet necessarily slayed that inflation dragon, as, as Jim Chalmers like to put it. And of course, people are too young, perhaps not even born yet, most people to remember how brutal both the high interest rates of the late 80s were when they were up at sort of 15, 16, 17%. I paid 17.5%. Well, this is what I was about to get to, Hugh. Yeah. I only remember it as a year nine student in 1990. And obviously younger than that in the late 80s when, when those high interest rates were what they were. It's not a woe is me tale with my parents. You know, they, they were fortunate because they had a fixed interest rate on their home. So that was fine. But they had bought two investment properties. Sounds more impressive than it was, just to be clear. But they had to offload those because the interest rates were such that they just couldn't afford to hang on to them. So they offloaded both properties, one of which was sort of their then retirement plan. It was a place up the coast. So it was less investment property and more planned to transition to that by the time they hit retirement age. Had to offload that. They had a little unit as another one and they had to offload that. But then they were they were the lucky ones, right? Because they had a fixed loan that was a, a separate deal done with the person who sold them their, their property in Coogee, which they were able to hang on to. But I, I saw this as a kid where you're only sort of semi-conscious of, of what's going on. You, Hugh, as you say, you bore the brunt of it as an adult, including the aftermath, by the way, the recession that followed. Because I didn't leave school until the end of 93 and then went to university before I hit the workforce, I didn't suffer the brutality that a lot of new school leavers and younger people suffered in the wake of those high interest rates when the recession that we had to have, as Paul Keating put it, followed, where unemployment shot up, particularly youth unemployment in the early 90s. I was lucky and avoided that because I was studying and just doing some part-time work here and there rather than actually looking for my full-time first job. Because what we have at the moment is still low unemployment. There are still reasonable prospects for those people who are coming out of schools and universities to go off and find jobs. Mm. There is a hunger for skills. And so that is an incredibly positive thing because when I left school and moved into the workforce, I, I hit that sort of early 80s recession. And there was a lot of nervousness, a lot of people, uh, you know, there was a lot of youth unemployment. You know, things have certainly been worse. And plainly, when you get interest rates on your household mortgage at 17.5%, it was stunning because it also got up there in a galloping rush. But the, you know, a key difference here is that I had bought a little place in Port Melbourne, which has now become quite a sort of glamorous inner city suburb of, of Melbourne, certainly in demand one. At that stage, it was seen as being basically very much a kind of a working class pocket and I, I bought the place for 80-something thousand dollars. So 17% on 80-odd thousand dollars hurt at that time. Wages are obviously lower. 
but it's nothing like the level of indebtedness that we have now. And that's the thing. We've got to see how we're going to navigate our way through this. And it's interesting that on the very first page of the budget overview, budget paper number one, when the Treasury or in the voice of Jim Chalmers maps out what are the potential downside risks, one of them is that there will be an overly strong pulling back of consumer behavior as all of this stuff goes from economic theory down to their lived reality. And people suddenly go, I'm nervous about my job. I'm seeing unemployment rates go up. They're not going up to skyrocketing levels, but they're up more than they were. So, you know, there's a bit of anxiety at work about jobs. Might there be some redundancies going around the place? Gee, the costs are going up. I blew too much on that holiday because the airline prices, or to go and see relatives overseas I haven't seen because of COVID. And so I've paid whatever Alan Joyce said I've got to pay to get that flight. And suddenly, I'd better pull my horns in big time. And if that kind of behavior starts to flow, you get back to FDR and the Great Depression, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. But it can become a self-fulfilling narrative. Yes. And then if people start to pull in horns big time, that's when you start to tip back into what uh, Paul Keating, of course, said, oh, this is a recession we have to have. But he was trying to put a gloss and a spin onto the fact that they had over-tightened and they'd pitched it into a hard landing. And this is going to be the space that we're into is, can we manage a soft landing? Will it be a hard landing? Most people think, the economists I've spoken to, don't think we're headed for a recession. But uh, on the Treasury's own language, it's not something that can be ruled out if that consumer spending shifts in that way. Yeah, yeah. That's the point where it becomes, the, as you called it, the self-fulfilling prophecy. I also would be surprised if we went into a recession, any sort of recession that is not, if you like, induced by something like COVID, which is the recession we couldn't avoid, is a hard landing by definition. Because with where we're at as a country now, with you know natural economic growth fueled by all of our sort of natural resource advantages with where we're at now, to even see negative growth in one quarter, much less replicated in two quarters, therefore creating a recession, you know, technically, that would be a hard landing because it's not something that Australia is sort of poised for. Other countries around the world that don't have our natural advantages can more easily fall into recession than Australia can. It's one of the reasons why we didn't have a recession during the GFC, for example. And we only just had a recession in the end, as it turns out, during COVID. I mean, that's a, a separate discussion. But in hindsight, the government trying to avoid missing its target on getting back in black, you know, where it could have gone harder with its handouts in the wake of the bushfires pre-COVID, but it was holding back a little bit. If it had actually gone full throttled at that time, it would have avoided that minimal negative quarter of growth before the huge one-off quarter that was the COVID-induced quarter, because everything bounced back so soon thereafter. Quite ironic, really. We, we could have had there been more generosity in the wake of the bushfires rather than worrying about the political implications of not hitting their still hoped target of back in black, they might have avoided a, re a technical recession and the rest of the world would be looking at Australia going, how the hell did you lot not go into recession in COVID when every single other advanced economy did? That would have been quite something. It's funny, isn't it? They uh, they just wanted those coffee mugs to uh, ring true, the back in black coffee mugs. <laughs> I forgot my coffee mug. I was going to sip on my back in black coffee mug while interviewing Jim Chalmers for our budget special, Hugh. I just <laughs> thought it would be funny to do, but I, I left it in Sydney, damn it. 
The other thing which I think really gets into households is power prices, and that was one of the shocking things that emerged from the budget is this uh, 56% rise over two years in electricity prices, 20% followed by 30% compounding to 56%. And that is something which were well, two things. People really noticed that. Second thing is, is that it does bring cries for the government to do something. And, you know, there was a kind of a, a non-promise, vague hint from Jim Chalmers at his National Press Club address that there would be a mechanism, a trigger, something of that sort that might come up to, to cap off gas prices, that there might be levers that he intends to pull. But it goes straight to the tortured, endless arguments about energy and, and how we should arrange it. In some ways, I think high electricity prices helps to spur innovation and transition. But this is going to be an issue that's going to run very hot into the next election because, among other things, it carries now the inevitability of a big broken promise. And that's that uh, promise of the $275 drop in power prices that Labor went into the election with. Yeah, it's a classic case of a government mugged by the reality of silly promises in opposition. You know, the idea that you could bring electricity prices down in what they knew during the election campaign was an inflationary environment already. It's one of those promises that they they break the way that Bob Hawke broke his no child will be living in poverty by 1990 promise. You know, you, you're never going to get there. So it's going to be a broken promise. Let's just wait and see how quickly it becomes a broken promise. The only way that power bills would have come down as per their expectation would have been with some sort of massive intervention that has its own fiscal recklessness attached to it. Jim Chalmers, I thought, was very good in his press club address of making the point that, he, yes, he's looking at possible intervention, but it has to be economically sound intervention. It can't be a reckless one. So the only way that you would really bring those prices down would be with something that was so sort of anti-capitalist as an interventive point, firstly, or you know, with some sort of huge, sudden, hard landing recession where inflation got gobbled up by an economic downturn that had a natural effect on that front. Look, I don't profess to know a huge amount, frankly, about the policy of energy policy. It's quite complex. I, I knew historically about it during the 1990s with case studies that I wrote about academically between what was happening in the West back when Colin Barnett was the energy minister rather than the premier in the court government versus what was happening in Victoria with Jeff Kennett. But they were very different issues to today. One thing I do know, though, is that, as you mentioned, Hugh, the politics of our higher energy prices being impacted and, and worsened by the climate change debate, there are enough elements of the Liberal Party that will keep arguing that as though that's some sort of factor. Labor, in answer to that, says, well, actually, that's part of the solution, not part of the problem, which I think you intimated at as well, Hugh, with this sort of innovation that can follow higher prices. That's one part of the political debate. And then the, the intervention side of the debate, as I say, you know, I don't know a huge amount about this, but it does strike me as problematic that we have such high production of things like gas, which we export without safeguards and mechanisms in place to ensure adequate domestic supply, including cost-effective domestic supply. And they've got a version of that in the West over in WA, but they don't have it up and down the East Coast where this is a much bigger problem. And the only thing that you have to throw into that policy mix is to change that. If you need to put retrospectivity into legislation that changes that, that carries sovereign risk, obviously, in terms of investing. So this is where the debate is. It's a complex debate, but it is a fascinating one once you get stuck getting your head around it. Yeah, it's one of those structures that's uh, far better when you put it in place as you're setting up your gas export 
plans rather than trying to retrofit it, as you say, because then it does get as ugly as hell. Look, there's a whole bunch of questions. The NDIS, the new industrial relations bill that's just hit parliament. I've got a lot of questions about how Peter Dutton's going to play this. So let's uh, take a quick break back in just a second. Well, welcome back. This is episode 133 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us, by the way. One of the well, the biggest cost increase, other than the servicing of the debt that uh, Australia now carries, is this blowout in the NDIS. It cannot be sustained, quite plainly, Peter. And uh, the Treasurer points out that, um, I guess, Bill Shorten, who's kind of the architect in many ways of the NDIS, is already out ahead of this by having a review into how it works on its current trajectory, it'll hit $100 billion a year within a decade. One of the things curious about that is that the opposition has not been oppositional. It has indicated in its early responses that it wants to work with the government to try to make the NDIS work. How do you see the politics of that playing? Yeah, it's really interesting. It feels like it can be compared to the way that the coalition approached Medicare during some of those tough economic times in the wake of the Hawke and Keating government's introduction of Medicare to replace free health care, which was what you know, obviously Whitlam had put in and then Fraser had reversed, they sort of came up with Medicare. The reason I'm interested in that comparison, Hugh, is because the Liberal Party was stuck in opposition for a long period, arguing that Medicare should be abolished when Australians knew it was expensive and it was showing exponential growth in that expense, but people wanted it because they liked the social outcomes of it. They liked the universality of Medicare and the Liberal Party paid an electoral price for doing what they thought at the time was the right thing ideologically for them, which was that, you know, this is too expensive, too unsustainable, let's get rid of it. Fast forward to today, they don't want to do that around the NGIS, probably for similar reasons. People like the sort of fact that we have that kind of safety net for people if they end up with a disability. But the politics is different because in no small part it's different because as you say, Labor are looking at a review to tighten it so that the cost blowouts, which as you mentioned, are unsustainable, can be dealt with. So you've got a Labor government looking to make some potential adjustments, and we'll find out what that review does. But for example, it might restrict eligibility so that it's not what defines as a disability is restricted to you know more severe disability, if I could put it that way, maybe. And so firstly, Labor's making the running on that and recognizing the need to rein it in. But I think on the other side, the Liberals don't want to be seen as anti the NDIS. So that's, I think, their strategy here. We'll see if it stays there because as the years roll by and as elections get closer, do they stick to that mantra or do they start to say Labor doesn't have the guts to rein this in and think that they could win that fight? For now, though, Hugh, it's as simple as this. They don't want a division on who agrees or disagrees with the NDIS. And they probably recognise politically that this is Labor's problem because it still has that profound impact on the budget bottom line and they can just attack Labor more broadly on the state of the budget bottom line without getting specific to where cuts could come and targeting something like the NDIS. Yes, it's, uh, this is the time where it's easy to be in opposition. But, you know, the coalition did get behind the NDIS. So in a, in a sense, it is one of those rare things, a little unlike Medicare, in that it was co-authored. It, it came from the Labor side. 
But uh, Tony Abbott was strongly behind it. Mitch Fifield was the minister. He was an absolute proselytizer for it. And I think part of that comes from is that before the NDIS, every MP, didn't matter where you were in the country, didn't matter what your political color was, the most tragic electorate constituent issues that they would face would be people coming with families, with members of the family, with a whole range of disabilities and horrible, difficult problems trying to find the ways to, you know, just to sort of survive their lives. And, you know, in many cases, the tragic case of parents being the primary carers and then them aging with, with adults, you know, with that terrible anxiety of, of saying, look, I, I'm too old. I can't sustain this anymore. I have a middle-aged but very disabled child and I'm afraid to die because if I do, who's going to look after him or her? And so these sorts of things, I think, really did change and bring bipartisanship to it because all politicians were confronted by those terrible realities. So plainly, it needs to be reined in. Plainly, it is unsustainable at that level. It is always going to be difficult. Wherever you put a margin, wherever you put a line and say, right, you're in and you're out, there'll be someone on that point who will have a heart-rending story. And then that gets megaphoned through that process of reform. It's always easier to set things up than it is to crimp things back again. So that's going to be immensely difficult, I think. I do want to get onto this industrial relations issue thing, but before we leave the budget completely, we've got another one coming in six months, as you point out, the normal cycle, the May cycle of budgets. With the hard work of closing the structural deficit within Australia, lifting productivity, controlling spending, building growth into the economy, that really hasn't been addressed yet. I think you've made the point. And I guess it now goes to a certain degree, it's obviously in the hands of the government, but what can we expect from Peter Dutton and his opposition? Is he going to be a constructive opposition leader looking for ways where he will support whatever processes might emerge that might boost productivity? Or is he going to be a guy whose one focus really is to chip away at this government to bring, ideally to bring it down within a single term, but at least to make such a chunk out of it that it can't go more than one term? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a really fascinating question because my natural instinct is to say, well, Peter Dutton's the kind of guy who's going to be a wrecker and he's going to try to emulate Tony Abbott in opposition and really turn Labor, if he can, into a sort of unpalatable government and therefore be nothing but somebody who bitches and moans, essentially, to try to get the political advantage that can flow from taking away the government's capacity to have runway for achieving change. That's my natural assumption about Peter Dutton. That butts up against the possibility, I guess, that the Liberal Party finds its ideological direction and supports actual reform if Labor pursues actual structural budget reform. And while I would normally discard that and say, yeah, that's not going to happen, and I, I tend to lean against it happening both with where the Liberal Party's at and with where Peter Dutton's at. But the reason I don't completely rule it out is because Peter Dutton does like to see himself as a disciple of Howard rather than a disciple of Tony Abbott. And his natural style might seem to equate to Tony Abbott. But if he does see himself as a disciple of Howard, Howard was the guy in opposition, both as deputy leader and leader, and then just as a senior figure after that, when he lost the leadership, who was constantly trying to make sure that the Liberals in opposition supported the microeconomic reforms of the Hawke years. So perhaps with you know a sort of a much older John Howard in Peter Dutton's ear, and Peter Dutton seeing himself as a bit of a disciple of Howard, who gave him his start in the ministry and his start in politics, maybe he tries to be a version of that 
But then Hugh, one very quick last thing, but then that was the policy of how Howard acted. And we need to put the caveat that he, there was a lot of things he disagreed with and argued with Labor about in the 80s. You know, you don't want to put rose-coloured glasses on it. But on the big things, he was sort of largely supportive. But in hindsight, that policy purity, if you like, cost them government. Though he was an, he was an unsuccessful opposition leader. They lost election after election. He only succeeded when he came back unexpectedly in 95 and then won the 96 election by being a bit like what Tony Abbott was also like. That was the lesson that Abbott learned as a disciple of Howard was that he was a wrecker in the countdown to the 96 election against Paul Keating. So that's my long-winded way of saying I really don't know, but I lean towards him being more likely to be just negative. Yeah, it's a fascinating comparative story because uh, Lazarus's return, uh, John Howard, such an unlikely path to the prime ministership. I remember seeing him in France in 1993 when he had nothing to do. And he turned up when they were taking some uh, veteran diggers from the First World War. It was the last big trip of the First World War veterans. They were uh, 75 years on after the end of the First World War. And I was reporting it. And uh, there we were with these wonderful old men. They were in their late 90s. And up popped John Howard on the bus because both his father and his grandfather fought in the First World War. And he just wanted to join the trip and go around the place. He had nothing to do at that stage in his career. And as he sat there, this kind of mild, not charismatic bloke in the back of the bus, helping these old blokes on and off the bus, if you'd gone and tapped on the shoulder, he said, Mr. Howard, Mr. Howard, I've seen the future. You're going to be the second longest serving prime minister in Australia. Don't worry, it'll be all right. He'd have looked at you as if you were mad, I think. His eyes might have twinkled, but he would have looked as if you were mad. So it is not a safe path to the prime ministership to follow the, the approach, I suppose, that uh, Howard put up in the 80s. And Peter Dutton might be a little bit more impatient for that. <laughs> you couldn't bank it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, just quickly, uh, probably one of the things I wrote that I'm the most proud of, I get a lot of prognosticating wrong, Hugh, including on our first ever podcast about Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten at the 2019 election, which I was subsequently mocked by lots of people about online, but in particular by the Prime Minister at the time, Scott Morrison, who enjoyed replaying my prediction about half a dozen times at the last midwinter ball, actually, before uh, the pandemic. But anyway, one thing where I got it right, though, my year nine, 1990 assignment after the loss of the 1990 election by Andrew Peacock, and I showed this to John Howard and he signed it for me when I was doing his biography. So my mum must have kept it. At the end of this school project about that election, in my conclusion, I said, and there's no exaggeration in this, I said, the Liberal Party in defeat is looking at unanimously getting behind a generational change to John Hewson. And then my last line was, this will be a mistake. They should go back to John Howard. He's the only figure in the Liberal Party that has the authority, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to return them to government. If they fail to do so, they probably won't win the next election. <laughs> that was in 1990. Wow. And so it was quite funny. I brought it out for him to sign. And I said, oh, Mr. Howard, read this you know, when we were doing the biography. And he looked at it. Yeah, he sort of didn't really care. But he, sort of, you know, but he, he then started to pay attention to it. He flipped back in it and he was trying to compare the handwriting on that last page to what was clearly a kid's assignment because he didn't believe it. He thought you'd added it on at the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you probably got a, like a B minus on the assignment because the guy says, well, that seems bloody improbable. What a stupid draft <laughs> idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The teacher at the time would have just gone, you idiot. Who, who are you kidding? And of course, you know, God, 
the more I've learned about politics, the less I know, you know, because back then I was only in year nine. Anyway. Look, um, the legislation for this new cross-enterprise bargaining arrangement Tony Burke is driving through, its stated aim is to raise wages and to break with what they say was the deliberate policy. Matthias Cormann back in the day that essentially said this was government policy was to uh, suppress wage growth in Australia. And this is Labor's answer to it. There's concern that it will, um, it's coming at the wrong time for businesses that are coming to all kinds of headwinds and that it will lead to more industrial disputation. We'll see how all this goes and doubtless we'll talk about it at more length. But just as you look at it now, is this good reforming policy or is it the worst of all style labour? Well, I think it, it, it has the potential to be either of those once we get a proper look at the details. I don't just instantly jump on either bandwagon, if I could put it that way. You know, the business community, it could be the best legislation in the world. And if they see it as crimping their potential profits, which most people would agree for a lot of businesses are sort of higher than they need to be necessarily at the expense of things like workers' rights and wages. Uh, so I, I certainly don't jump straight on, on the bandwagon of the various employer representatives. But by the same token, I do have a little bit of concern that Labor is doing a sop to the union core support that it has in the aftermath of a victory and that as a consequence, they might not get the balance right on this. The most important thing, I think, is that you know, if we assume good faith in the way that this gets introduced and then debated before the amended version eventually presumably passes the parliament, I like to think that the hope at least is that the time it will take to go through this process for change will get us past the period where it might not be the best thing to have laws like this come into place now with the climate that we're in. And I suspect that that is the case because if you look at the forecasting of the budget, it suggests that they don't see real wages growth until 2024 anyway. So the lag effect of, of if this legislation does what it's supposed to uh, might actually work in the favour of everyone, including businesses in the short term, but in the longer term, employees who have had very shallow wages growth at best. Mm, I'd be welcome in many uh, households. I think that, that sense of frustration that uh, wages have gone backwards. That was a very clear clarion call from Anthony Albanese. Everything's going up except for your wages, and uh, they're still not going up in real terms for a little while to come. So uh, it'll find some supporters. He'll want that to have changed, Hugh, won't he, by the time of the next election? It's a promise. That's a promise he wants to keep mm. for sure. Great to talk to you as always, PVO, and we'll speak again soon. Talk to you next week. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.